We're starting Genesis 17 today, and God's going to appear to Abram, which is very exciting. All right, here we go. Hi, I'm Miss Tyler, and welcome to this week's episode of Context for Kids, where I teach you guys stuff most adults don't even know. If this is your first time hearing, or if you've missed anything, you can find all the episodes archived at contextforkids.podbean.com, which has them downloadable, or at contextforkids.com, where I have transcripts for readers, or on my Context for Kids YouTube channel, where I now post slightly longer video versions. Of course, there's no video today, because my hair looks like the ancient aliens guy. So, yeah, there's that. So parents, all scripture this week comes from the Christian Standard Bible, and I didn't have to tweak it because it was really understandable the way it was, and I don't like to tweak it unless I have to. So hey there, we are finally beginning chapter 17 of Genesis, and this is a really important chapter. We're going to get introduced to so many important topics like what does God Almighty mean in the ancient world? How do we actually live in God's presence? And what does it mean to be blameless? And what the heck happened to the last 13 years of Abram's life? And how is the Lord appearing to Abram different from his being visited by the word of the Lord in chapter 15 and Hagar's meeting with the angel of the Lord in chapter 16? And that's just the first two verses of this chapter. Let's read those verses. When Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. So one other mystery here. Wasn't the covenant set up already in chapter 15? Sometimes it seems like the closer we pay attention to the Bible, the more confusing it gets. And oftentimes that is true. But usually it's an invitation to learn more in hope of solving the mystery, or at least learning more about God. Learning to think about the Bible critically, which means looking at it in ways that ask questions which don't always have answers, will teach us more about God and his love than just assuming that we know it all and I do not know it all. This is a fantastic chapter to ask a lot of questions. I will have some answers for you, but on other things, all I can offer are some what-ifs. The wonderful thing about God is that he loves it when we ask the hard questions and trust him, even when and especially when we don't understand. But you can't trust God just because you read the Bible. God teaches us to trust him through relationship, just like with anyone else. When we do awful things and he doesn't kill us with a lightning bolt, we begin to realize that we can trust him and he isn't just waiting for us to screw up. And we see that even though Abram and Sarai spend chapter 16 being just awful to Hagar, that they're still around 13 years later and God hasn't given up on them. And Hagar was promised many things about her son Ishmael too. And right now she's just waiting for him to grow up so they can happen. But as we'll see over the next few chapters, things are not good, but with the family. Now things are good between Abram and his son Ishmael, whom he loves very much, but things are definitely not okay between Abram and Hagar and between Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael. 
As chapter 17 begins, the only two people who are happy are Abram and Ishmael. Abram is happy because he has a 13-year-old son, and Ishmael is happy because he has a father who loves him and is teaching him to be a great leader of men, although we don't know how he feels about his mother still being a slave. We don't know. So the first thing we learn is that Abram is now 99 years old. Well, last time we saw him, he was 86 and Sarai was 76. Ishmael is 13 and Hagar is probably in her 20s. Hagar is still a slave, even though she's Ishmael's mother. Must have been frightening for Sarai, wondering what would happen to her when her husband died, which could happen any time now. She had planned on adopting Ishmael as her own son, but God said that Hagar would name him. Sarai didn't have the son she had wanted, and Ishmael would be in charge once Abram died. Sarai had been very cruel to Ishmael's mother, and Abram was probably the only one keeping her safe from Hagar getting revenge. Abram and Sarai have been living in the land of Canaan for 24 years now, and it seems as though God hasn't had anything to say to them for the past 13 years. The last one God had anything to say to was Hagar in the wilderness when he sent the angel of the Lord to speak his words to her. Now, when we get to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord appears to Jesus' mother Mary and calls himself Gabriel. But is there more than one angel of the Lord? Is Gabriel the same angel who spoke to Hagar? No way to know for sure, but it would be cool if the first and last time we saw him... He was talking to these two young women. The Bible is just packed full of fun, I wonders, and what ifs. And when we get comfortable with questions that have more than one possible answer, it makes it a lot easier to listen to what other people have to say about what they see in the Bible without getting hostile or thinking that our way is the only way to see things. It really helps us to love other people and not just ourselves. Maybe Abram thinks that everything is perfect now, and so God has been leaving him alone. After all, he has the son he always wanted, and so he's very happy. And the last 13 years have been pretty darned quiet. God never said anything to Abram and Sarai about how he felt about what they did to Hagar. The last thing God said to Abram is when he promised him that he would have a son and that his descendants would have the land of Canaan for their own. God didn't mention Sarai having a baby or how long it would take. This was a test to see if they would wait for God to keep his promises, and they failed it terribly. They made it happen in a very bad way, and now, even though Abram loves his son, their lives are a big mess. The Bible says the Lord appeared to Abram. Doesn't say it was a vision this time, which is, you know, like a dream when you're wide awake. But instead, he appeared like he did all the way back in chapter 12, right after Abram got to the land of Canaan. And it doesn't say how God appeared to Abram, just what he says to him. I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, that is El Shaddai. El Shaddai? What does that mean? Well, El is short for the Hebrew word Elohim, 
that is translated as God in English. And we've talked about this before. Elohim can mean all sorts of things, just like the word God. But El almost always means our God or other gods in the Bible. And when it doesn't, it means a powerful person. What about Shaddai? No one alive today knows what the heck that means, even though there are many theories based on similar words in related languages. And that means languages that have a lot in common, like German and English or French and Spanish. Anyway, Shaddai is a word that shows up six times in Genesis and 31 times in Job, but very few other places. Because of this, many scholars believe that this is a very old word and that the meaning of it was lost a very long time ago. After all, no one was writing dictionaries back then where they could say, Shaddai is a noun, meaning such and such that refers to God. So, translators use the word almighty because it's just as good a guess as anything else. Something interesting is that the word Shaddai is related to a mother breastfeeding her baby in Hebrew. And so maybe God is telling Abram that he is the God who makes babies happen and that Abram and Sarai didn't respect that when they took matters into their own hands back in chapter 16. It's a big mess, and God has been allowing them all to stew in it. There are a lot of reasons why God doesn't talk to us or why we don't hear from God, and some are good and some are bad. Sometimes we think we've done the right thing because God leaves us alone about it, like with Abram and Sarai. They got what they wanted, and maybe they think God is okay with it because he didn't yell at them or anything. Sometimes we do that too, and we think that we've done everything right because God isn't correcting us. But the Bible says that God is long-suffering, and that means he's incredibly patient with us when we've messed up. Other times God is silent as a test of our trust in him. He makes a promise and then leaves us alone, and I know what that's like, to see if we will watch and wait and prepare ourselves to see how he works things out, or if we will do everything we can to make it happen ourselves. Sometimes we just don't hear him because we're so busy and aren't listening, or maybe we don't know how to listen or even that we need to. Maybe we're expecting a loud outside voice that is obvious, and sometimes that happens, but usually we have to start by listening and wanting to hear whatever he has to say, even if it's hard to hear. I mean, usually when he talks to me, it's because he wants to fix something I'm doing wrong. And he doesn't talk to me about it until I'm ready and can handle what needs to be done. That is never fun. God generally doesn't tell me when someone else is doing something wrong. After all, I can't fix them, so it wouldn't do much good. God promised Abram a baby boy, and they came up with a clever way to help God, quote-unquote, to make that happen when they wanted it to happen. But he is El Shaddai, and he makes his own special babies, exactly when he wants them to be born. Isaac wasn't just any baby like you and me. He was a baby of promise. Ishmael was a baby of planning by people, not a baby of promise. He is special and loved by God like all children, but not promised. What does God say after introducing himself? 
He says, live in my presence and be blameless. What does it mean? This is the fifth time that God has told Abram to do something. First, in Genesis 12, to leave his home and follow God to the land of Canaan. Second, Abram was told to walk all over the land God promised to give him in chapter 14. Third, God commanded Abram to look up in the sky and see the stars that couldn't even be counted because they were so many, just like his descendants. That was chapter 15. Fourth, God told Abram to bring all those critters to be cut in half for the covenant of the peace, and that was also in Genesis 15. Now God is telling Abram to walk in my face and be complete. Or at least that's how we would translate it if we were just using Strong's Concordance as a dictionary. But walking in God's face seemed more than a bit disrespectful to me. Instead, this is more like an idiom. God generally talks about his face, his pane in Hebrew, even though he doesn't have a face. In the ancient world, they thought of someone's face as something you could only see when you were close enough to them. In other words, you can only see someone's face when you are where they are, in their presence, hanging around them. This was before television and movies and photographs, so that was the only way. So being in someone's face was to be where they are, close to them. Not to be confused with the American idiom of getting in someone's face, meaning to threaten them and challenge them to a fight. And what does blameless mean? Does it mean to be absolutely perfect and never do anything wrong? Abram better hope not because he still has some messing up to do. And only Jesus was ever totally perfect. The Hebrew word tamim is another word with different meanings, but... The most important one is that something or someone is complete or whole. This word shows up a lot in Leviticus and Numbers. The Bible books that talk about the animal sacrifices and how they weren't allowed to take the animals that were sick or torn up by wolves to give to the Lord. They had to give their best animals to God, just like they would if they were entertaining a king or a queen. Only God's even better than that. The Bible often translates this as without blemish or perfect, not because anything or anyone is perfect, but because they weren't damaged in any way. They were valuable animals, right? Did that mean that Abram wasn't allowed to break a leg or go blind or deaf or get a scratch or a disease? No, nothing like that. A person can be whole and complete on the inside without having to be that way on the outside. Goodness sakes. You know, people my age don't even always have all their original body parts anymore. But we can still be whole, complete, blameless, and tamim no matter what is going on with our bodies. That's why even though the priests who were disabled couldn't serve in the temple, they were still priests and they were still able to eat the special tithe offerings that no one else was allowed to eat, and they could teach the Bible and be elders in the communities where they lived. Serving the temple was hard, heavy, slippery, and difficult work. God protected the priests who couldn't do the work, but he still treated them like priests because they got all the perks. 
Throughout the Bible, we see different people who are said to have walked before the Lord, like Noah and Abram, those who walked with the Lord like Enoch, and those who walk after him, like Moses told the children of Israel in the wilderness to do right before they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And Jesus told his disciples, that means you and me too, to follow him. Now, we don't know much about Enoch, so we can't really say what walking with God, you know, so good that you get taken away, you know. But we do know that in the ancient world, to walk in front of your king meant that you were a faithful servant. You would be the first person to spot problems and dangers, and you would be the one telling the people that the king was coming. So the people would clear the way and cheer him once they saw him. I think for this year at Purim, I'm going to talk about how Haman was forced to walk before Mordecai, who he was trying to kill, so this was no fun for Haman. King Ahasuerus told Haman to walk before Mordecai the way God told Abram to walk in front of him. So hilarious, just not for Haman and his family. God was telling Abram to be his ambassador to the world and even his spokesman sometimes. So God was telling Abram that if he was going to have that job, he had to represent God's character and his words as perfectly as possible because whatever he did wrong made God look bad. Moses told the people to walk after God, to follow him, and Jesus said, follow me. Those are both saying the exact same thing. To learn how to show the world who God is, we have to follow along behind him and do what he does. And that's why Jesus is so important because looking at him and what he does is the same thing as looking at God and what he does. To be like Jesus is the same thing as being like God. Moses told the children of Israel to follow God by loving him and by loving their neighbors as themselves and foreigners and strangers too. To truly love God is to make sure that we don't shame him and make him look bad by treating others badly or lying to them or about them, stealing from them, tricking them, saying or doing mean things to them, or anything like that. When we do things like that, we're following someone, but it isn't God. I once knew a young man, a teenager, who liked to say he was a godly man to his teachers at school. But then he would turn around and cheat on his schoolwork and test and would cut and paste things from the internet and pretend like he'd written them himself. What he said didn't match up with who he really was on the inside, and the proof was how he behaved on the outside, and his teachers weren't fooled. Fortunately, he snapped out of that nonsense and is learning to be a good man. He's learning to follow God, even though he has been taught about God since he was a baby. Kids aren't Christians just because their parents are. It's a decision each one of us has to make for ourselves. God wants you to follow him, and he doesn't just want your parents to follow him. He wants everyone in your family. You are important to him, to his kingdom, and to his plans. I guess we can say that God was telling Abram, stick with me and behave yourself. God also told Abram, I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Now, wait a minute. Didn't that already happen, like, 
15 years ago when Abram cut all the critters in half and God appeared between the pieces as fire and smoke, just like he would do for the children of Israel in the wilderness? Something strange is going on here. Well, if we go back to chapter 15, we see something interesting. That covenant was all about the land of Canaan. God promised it to Abram and his descendants. And then Abram asked, well, how do I know that I will get this land? That's when God told Abram to get the critters. You see, Abram believed that he would have many descendants and he didn't ask for any proof of that. But he did ask for proof that the land would belong to them. That is what we call a land grant covenant. When a king gives a gift of land to a family forever, or I mean, as long as he and his kids are kings anyway. But this time God is making a covenant promise to multiply Abram greatly, which probably confused Abram because he already has a son. But God is saying, I will set up a covenant and not, I did set up a covenant when Ishmael was born. We don't know if Abram's worried yet or not, but that's about to change in a big way. You know, at this point, we've heard the words be fruitful and multiply so many times that we might think it'll go on forever, but we would be wrong. In fact, we see it eight times in Genesis and only once in Leviticus in the covenant promises to the nation of Israel living in the land, if the entire nation obeys God, which never happened, by the way. But once the children of Israel entered the promised land, they're called a great and numerous people, meaning there are a lot of them. And we never hear anything again about their needing to be fruitful and multiply. Does that mean no one needs to have kids anymore? What does Jesus say about having kids? Well, he does say that people will be getting married and having babies and stuff until he comes again. But he never tells anyone that it's the purpose of their life. Instead, he tells men and women to follow him and to tell everyone about him, and to go out in the world and make disciples of all the nations of the world. But what does that mean? Well, as we go through Genesis, everyone is talked about for like two reasons. Well, mostly. How long they lived and who their kids were. Now, some people get more than that, like Noah, Abram, Sarai, Isaac, and Jacob. But mostly it seems like the only reason we know most of these people ever lived is because they had kids. The Bible doesn't seem to care more about them than that since God wasn't working through them and they weren't following him. That's all that mattered about what they did when they were alive as far as God's story goes. They were born, they had kids, they died, the end. Most of the time when women are mentioned, it's because they're wives and mothers and men because they're husbands and fathers. It was important for God to teach us how important it is to fill his kingdom with people. But what did Jesus say right before he went back to heaven to be with the Father? Jesus came near and said to them, I have been given all the power to rule over heaven and earth. So go make disciples, which means followers of God, of all the peoples of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've told you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, wow, he did tell them to be fruitful and multiply, but to do it by traveling near and far and telling everyone 
in the world all about him. That's why at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, we see people from every nation, every tribe, every color, and every language standing side by side as sisters and brothers, all worshiping the Lamb of God, Jesus. And when we do that, we won't be thinking of any of the ridiculous stuff that we think now about people who are different from us. We will all love Jesus, and we will all love each other. I love you. I'm praying for you. This week, I want you to think about how many more quote-unquote children we can bring to God by talking to people about him versus how many we can get by being married and giving birth to them. There was a time when God needed for there to be a lot more people to fill the earth, but now that it's filled, it's time to make sure that they all know about Jesus. And all of you, you're my special project.